1: The scripture reading this morning is Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food, day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? For I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the lands of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me saying to me all day long where is your god why my soul are you downcast why so disturbed within me put your hope in god for i will yet praise him my savior and my god amen
2: Good morning, and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. I'm glad to be back with you after having some time off. I was all excited about coming here, got dressed, asked my wife how I look. She goes, you look like a waiter. (laughs) So here I am. Art is an expression of the human experience. That's why we love art. Whether you're listening to art or you're seeing the art, or you're um, just watching the art in front of you, it connects to an experience of our lives. I think this is the reason why when uh, people listen to music icon Taylor Swift songs about her relationship hurt and heartache, people connect with it. And I had to look this up, but I've found various articles that show that she's written no less than 15, probably more, Songs about particular relationship issues that went wrong. My uh, favorite song is We Are Never, Ever, Ever Gonna Get Back Together. What I didn't know is that was actually about Jake Gyllenhaal as an actor. So um, now you know. Um, that she was working through that. And what's interesting is so many Americans listen to, to that song and it helps them process their own heartache and hurt and relational issues. Because why? Because the art reflects reality to us. It, it helps interpret our own experiences and therefore we can know ourselves better. The Psalms are the same thing. The Psalms are songs that uh, act as a means for us to tap into the very fabric of reality. They allow us to, to make sense of our lives and, and uh, our experiences. But we have to do more, obviously these are thousands of years old, so we have to do a little more work to kind of get into them. And today's particular psalm, famously, is a song of lament. It's processing how we handle hardship in particular. Uh, Some of you here are going through that right now, and so this song, this psalm is for you. Some of you are not going through this, but you have, and you will again, and so this song is for you as well. That helps us work through our emotions and give us words for our understanding. Uh, the most classic handling of this particular text comes from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I'm indebted to in our, for our sermon today, uh, because he gets into what is happening here in the psalmist's life. So let's look at it in three ways. Let's look at what he feels, let's look at why he feels it, and then let's look at what he does about it. All right? Very simple. We're just going to look at what does he actually feel? But let's, let's see ourselves in that. Let's look at why he feels it, and then we're going to look at what he does about it. So first, what does he feel? And he, even though these are words here, these are word pictures. Sometimes pictures are better at describing things than, than a particular word. And he gives us a picture right away in verse 1. He says, As the deer pants, so my soul pants for you. So he, the first image is a doe, A deer. <laughs> A female deer happening here. And, sorry, I just kept going in my head. But this is, again, put your, the psalmist is in an arid climate. If it was a camel in an arid climate, eh, you're going to be okay. But if you are a deer panting for water, you know what a deer panting for water is in an arid climate? About to be a dead deer. This is an a, a animal that used to taste water and now is thirsting for water. And he makes himself... Uh, it, it, the metaphor is, this is me. So he used to taste, what, what is the food, what is the water? Thirst for God. This is verse 2. My soul thirsts for God. I used to know what it was like to have God in my life. And now I don't have God in my life. Now I don't know what it tastes like anymore. I've forgotten it. So in other words, what this seems like is this is an individual who's, who God used to be real to him. And now God is no longer real to him. And so, this is for anyone who's ever wanted to, anyone who ever had believed before in God, or wanted to believe, or could have believed, and yet something happened in your life, or something is happening in your life right now, and it's become less tenable for you to taste and see and experience and know God. And I guess before we move on, you have to, again, if this is what he's experiencing, how do you see yourself in this? Where have you been questioning? Where have you been doubting? Where have you been in your life? Maybe not in every part, but maybe in certain parts, you're not actually going to the place to know God in that space. Where you're kind of like, where are you, God? I can't see you, God. I can't, I can't understand you anymore, God. In verse 2, it's, there's a lostness here. My, fo- my soul thirsts. Where can I go to meet you, God? Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this spiritual dryness or spiritual absence and I think I've said this here before. As a minister, since I became a minister, the number one complaint that people say the most to me is this. They say, I believe in God, but I don't feel his presence. I, 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 I intellectually, cognitively, conceptually get the idea of God, but I don't experience that. I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't, I don't feel his presence. I don't know him, and and frankly, I don't know if he knows me. And so look at this phrase again where it says in verse 2, where can I go to meet you, God? The the literal translation there is where can I go to see your face? And our translators try to make it a little more simpler for us. But you you know this, right? When you text people on your phone, I actually tell people, please do not have a—do not text long conversations to individuals because the words are fine, but because you can't see the person's face— you really don't know what they're saying back in a lot of ways. But it's something like 90% of communication is, is, is body language. You can't see it. You can't experience what that, other, what that person is, is trying to really show you, even though the words are there. In the same way, this individual is saying, I can't see your face anymore. I can't experience your presence. I can't, I, I, I'm in a space of spiritual darkness and dryness and deadness. In other words... God in in the world for this individual that they're living in no longer seems tenable. Doesn't make sense to them. So first point, what does he feel? This is what he feels. I would argue it's often what we feel. I would argue that this is often what we experience because of our lives. So what's what he feels? Now, number two, fine. Why does he feel it? Why does he feel this way? Well, when spiritual dryness and heartache and sadness and despair comes on us, I believe it's very important for us to trace the origin of those feelings back to where they started so that we can try to make sense of where we're at. To know where, Basically, you don't know where you're going until you know where you've come from. Same thing with our feelings. And he gives us a couple of causes for his feelings. Look at the causes. Number one, go to verse four. It's because he used to have community. Look at verse 4. He goes, I used to go to the house of worship among the festive throng. In other words, he used to have this community and now he doesn't. And then if you skip down to verse 6, there's all this language about geography from the land of Jordan to the heights of Hermon. What, he used to be in one part of Judea and now he's moved to another part of Judea. So if you add those two factors together, he points out that he has geographically moved, and he's communally moved, and combined together, that has led to him no longer, because he doesn't have community, he no longer has that connection. I think, uh, we, I don't need, I'm not going to belabor this point, but the statistics are, show that how, as we become more transient in this culture, what's interesting is actually you, you and I have more connections than ever before, and yet the depth of those relationships, the depth of those connections are, are thinner than they've ever been before as well. And so what's ends up happening is as we become more transient, as we use more tech, as we're more connected but actually less deep, we've, we've hurt our community. Each decade, Americans report a decline in relationships in general, but friendships in particular— and it leads to more communal breakdown because we're, we're favoring our privacy, we're favoring our freedom of individuality over our connectedness, over our knownness by other folks. And that is contributing to why our souls are downcast. That's, what, that's exactly what's happening for the psalmist. I think that's why it's actually somewhat ironic and I try not to, when people come and say, I believe in God, but I don't feel his presence. I think the irony is that... When people say that, that they don't sense God's presence, they don't realize that maybe the lack of relationship with, as, as Bruce said up here earlier, of the images of God, where we, what do the images of God do? Other individuals give us, in, you know, reflections and aspects of God. Well, of course, if we're having less of those relationships, at least the depth of them in our lives, of course we're not going to sense and see God as much. To make it a little, put it a little more strongly, if, uh, and, you know, we shouldn't complain that we can't hear from God if God's images are not deeply involved in our lives communally and relationally. And so therefore, unless we build, at even Redeemer Lincoln Square right here, our surveys that we just did a couple weeks ago show that so many of you are new to the city and new to Lincoln, Redeemer Lincoln Square. And unless we kind of build here in this space, even if you've been here for a while— You have to be committed to the project of continually restarting relationships, pouring into relationships, spending the time into them. I used to work in college ministry, and um, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, was a college minister up at Harvard, and he was saying the difficulty of starting ministry up there. I said, what's the problem? He goes, well, there's all these individuals up here who, they look at the total amount of hours it would take to be in community, and they can't see how that's, that's a, a sunk cost, that I could be doing my hours over here of winning in life and, and building the next important idea or company. And I, I, or if I could put my time over here in these relationships, they, they do the equation, they, we do the assessment, and we say, it's not worth the relationship. It's not worth the community. We're all doing the same version in some way. That's the first reason why he feels this way. Number one.
0: At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q and R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq@redeemer.com or. Join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com YouTube.
2: All right, number two, the events of his life. Go back down to verse three. In verse three, it says, "Where right, people say to me all day long, where is your God? Now, I don't know about you, but I've only been questioned by other people in my life about where there is, where's your God? Why is he not showing up here? Usually there must have been, that's, a, that's usually a space where something bad happened and that people around you are saying, it doesn't make sense for you to believe in an all-powerful and all-loving God if this event happened. That something must have been so bad or so hard it made the people around him question the veracity of his faith and belief. And even more interesting The people start off that way, but then skip down to verse 9, flip the page. He starts asking the same question now. Why have you forgotten me? Why are you you not here with me anymore? In other words, the, the very questioning that the community around him was doing eventually got into his own heart. This is actually pretty normal, right? If there's people around you that don't hold your worldview, and they have questions about your view, if you don't answer those questions, if you don't do that work yourself, those questions become your questions. You end up starting asking the same exact the questions. Because why? When everything's great, by the way, whether you're an atheist or, or a Christian, that worldview, when everything's great, is confirmed because my life's doing okay. It's only when things start falling apart, when, there's, when things don't start making sense, the equation doesn't add up, that's when you start questioning. That's when you start doubting. Whatever belief system that you have. Because it's in that moment that for this individual that says, I now can't believe. I won't believe in this God because he's either stopped this good thing in my life or started this bad thing. And so some people try to get God off the hook here. They try to say, well, well, God, God didn't actually bring this into your life. You know, God didn't do this. He just allowed it to happen. But that doesn't quite get God off the hook, does it? Look at verse seven here, uh, again, on the other page. Deep calls a deep. All your waves All your breakers have swept me away. Which, by the way, if you want to contrast the imagery, I'm thirsting for God. I'm dying of thirst, and yet I'm the waves, the water of the hurt of my circumstances are crashing on me over and over and over again. And it's coming from He recognizes it. He he can't explain why the circumstances of of his life are this way, and yet God is allowing them to be this way. All right, number two, number three, his tears. Look at Lloyd-Jones points this out in verse 3, that my tears have been my food day and night. I didn't pick this up, but he points out, if your tears are day and night, if they're 24-7, that means you're not sleeping. That means that you're not eating. Well, you're eating, you're eating your tears, which is not enough. And what, what the, what, what's being pointed out here is that there's a physical component, potentially, to our despair and our hurt and our questioning and our doubting. And so let me just recap this real quick. The three things contributing to his life, the factors are, number one, there's a relational element of hurt from the lack of community. Number two, there's a, there's a physical, there's a physiological aspect of hurt that's coming from the lack of eating and sleeping that, that, that's affecting his mind. And then thirdly, there's a spiritual emotional component of being unable to see God's ways and means in our circumstances. And I'm bringing this up, why? because this is so multifaceted. And I'm also bringing it up because the solutions the modern world tends to bring is usually overly simplistic and reductionistic. How many people say, you know what, all you're having issues, go to counseling. By the way, counseling is good. But counseling deals with the emotional and maybe spiritual side of things. But not the physiological, not, and, and certainly, and often not, um, not <laughs> some of the, the deeper issues that you might have with God. Some people say, hey, you know what? What you really need to do is just you need to sleep better and eat better. They put you on a new diet. They give you a new workout routine. I just need to life hack my life, and then things will be better. But again, that's, uh, that's only one aspect. By the way, there's a spiritual version of this. Some people say, you know what? No, no, no. What we need is just a supernatural encounter with God. What we need is just you need know, to pray more, and we just need to look at the, the paranormal more. And if we do that, then things will be better. And this psalmist is saying... All those answers are good in part, but they can't actually be the explanation on their own. It's multifaceted. Richard Baxter, a theologian from the 1600s, in a sermon, he actually lists at least four possible reasons for why you might be feeling a certain way. He says maybe the reason why you feel this way, there's a moral reason. Maybe there's, there's shame or guilt for something you've done or not done. Secondly, he says, maybe there's a physiological. We just talked about that. There's a, there's a physical aspect to it. Thirdly, you know what he says is maybe it's temp- temperamental. Maybe you, your temperament happens to be more overly introspective. Maybe you tend to be the kind who worries and doubts and, and you know, gets all, you know, in a tizzy. And then fourthly, he says, there, there's also the demonic. There's supernatural. There's something more. But what I love about him is he says, you can't actually say it's only one of these things. And it also means that we have to be careful in the diagnosis of what the real problem is in your own life and in your own heart. It, you're, you are multifaceted. There's so many different aspects. We have to be careful. And so, if that's the truth, if, this, the, if these are all the reasons why he's feeling this way, last point, what does he do about it? Right? If, if we looked at what he feels and we looked at why he feels, last thing we to look at is what does he do? And I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't just sit around. Go to, look at verse four. It says, the, I'm pouring out my soul. A lot of people who say, hey, Michael, I, um, <clears throat> you know, I believe in God. I just don't feel his presence. I'm like, what are you doing about that? They're like, I don't know. And, and I'm like, well, you can't just sit on your hands. This, this person who is having an issue with God goes to God about it. Pouring, we're literally reading about his soul poured out. And so the psalmist is saying, when you don't get God, don't stop going to God. Step one is, if you're not getting anything out of prayer, that sounds like a great thing to pray about. If you're not getting anything out of Scripture, you should go to the people in Scripture that are not getting anything out of God, right? Like, like right here in, in Psalm 42. There's this great quote by John Newton where he says, if you're getting nothing out of going to the throne of grace, you certainly are going to get nothing out of not going to the throne of grace. And it's just, it's, I'm, I'm, it, when, I, when I read that, I was like, oh, zinger. Because what happens, you go, oh, I'm not getting anything, so I'm not going to do anything. And this person is saying, no, pray about not wanting to pray. Feel that you don't feel his presence. Talk to God about not wanting to talk to God. And when you don't feel like praying or reading or worshiping, those are the best times to go to him to say that. I, I do that with myself. I do that with my kids. I don't want to pray now. Okay, let's pray about not wanting to pray. And inevitably, what the psalmist is showing us and what's preserved in the Bible is this is an okay thing to do. You're allowed to do this. There's, There's no shame in feeling the way that you feel right now. It's right here. Number one, step one. Number two, next he examines his hopes. Look at verse five and then verse 11. He keeps saying, put your hope in God in verse five. Verse 11, put your hope. Why does he have to say that? You only have to say that to yourself if you know you're not doing it. At some level, there's a self-awareness, a realization, oh my goodness, I'm not actually putting my hope in God. Which by definition, de facto, you're putting your hope into something else. You're putting your your hope maybe into someone else. And so he's probably questioning himself. Is he hoping in his career more? Maybe that's why he was moving around. Maybe that's why he was being transient. And so he, we need to, like him, examine our hopes. What are you today? What are you putting your hope in? Tease out the promises that the hope is whispering into your ears about of relationship, of friendship, of, of experiences, of travel, of money, of career. And ask yourself, if I had those things, would well, then my life be perfect? Would it now be fit? Would well, now I have my life that I've always wanted? The answer is no. Not to the degree that we would need. And what... What we're seeing by this psalmist is we need to realize, unless we put our hope in God, we're going to continue to be downcast. Number three. Fourthly, uh, sorry, thirdly, that was number two. He remembers. I saw a special on on television recently about uh, the the clans in the highland of, of Scotland. And they would sing songs to themselves while they were doing just sort of everyday chores. But these were not Taylor Swift songs. They were not songs that were catchy or... You know the tunes in the in the lyrics were not about um, you know their lives. No, instead they were they were singing songs about their histories and moral sayings. It was a means to remember. And the psalmist is the same way. Look in verse six, he says, uh, "Therefore I will remember you," which is kind of generalized. But if you go to verse eight, he says, "I will remember how you direct your love." At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. This word love here is the Hebrew word chesed, which means loving kindness, which means grace. In other words, he's trying to remember, despite his circumstances, despite his life, despite the hurt, that what God has done in his life, why he is a loving, kind, and faithful God. And I think I would argue that the Bible is a record of where God has been, with his people, and your life is a record where God's been with you in the fire, in the flames, in the flood. That he brings us into hard circumstances, but he also brings us out of those circumstances. He um, brings us to spaces where the circumstances are here and they're hard, but he also brings us out of them. That we have a God who brings the waves, but he also brings the love. And so even when our sadness and our hurt feels like the biggest thing, his love, his hesed, has to be remembered. Number three. All right, last step. He speaks to his heart. I think it's important to do something. That's step one. It's important to examine step two. It's important to remember step three. But those three things are not enough. He actually has to speak at. And we've, we brought this up a couple of weeks ago, but we, were, we have to say it again. The psalmist, who is he talking to? He's not just talking to God. He's not just talking to you and me. He's talking to himself. He says, where, oh my soul? Why, oh my soul, are you downcast? Why? He's talking to his own heart. And I think this is key for our lives. And the reason why you and I don't see as much change in our life as we would like is we do, listening is good. But Lloyd-Jones would say the the biggest problem in our lives is you probably do too much listening and not enough speaking to your heart. Listening, you have to listen. He does listen to himself, but he takes what he hears and speaks back at himself. And so we we should not ignore our our feelings or circumstances, but we also must not allow ourselves to just be victims of our own experiences either. We have to go beyond that and speak at our heart and tell our heart why we should put our hope in the Lord. That's what's happening in verse 5. And then you can almost see where he goes. He says, why? Look at verse 9. Because you're my rock. Why? Look at verse 11. Because I, you're my savior. I can put my hope into you. He's going to, these key phrases are, are mnemonic devices for him to say, oh yeah, I that's I, oh, right. He is that sturdy, stable space that I can stand on as a rock. All right? He is that savior that I can hope in. And, I, and my best, my, one of my favorite parts is the very end says, I will yet put my praise into him. This is so, I love this because it's so freeing. It's not saying I am putting my, my hope into him. I will yet. It's, it, this is not the past. It's not even the present. It's the future tense. It's saying it's aspirational. In other words, this is going to take time and effort. He says, I will yet do this to remember and experience the Lord. All right. So how, how does he end? He says, I have to make sure... I remember that you're my savior. This man knew God as his savior, generally speaking. Maybe he remembered uh, the exodus and how God provided. Maybe he remembered individual experiences in his life. That's God as a savior in general, but we have something so much more vivid that when you say, I believe in God, but I don't feel his presence, the main reason why is because his love and deeds do not seem real to us. And so how do you get that? Jesus Christ actually quoted this specific text. Did you know that? He quoted, my soul is sorrowful unto death. He was thinking about this particular place where he felt, because in Dorothy Sayers' words, this is what she says. She says, in Jesus, at least God had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. That Jesus was born into poverty and died in disgrace, but thought it was well worthwhile." That is an important statement because that's not God dying as an example to how to live a life. That's not God just saying, I know what it's like to be you because I've experienced things like you. It's more. A couple months ago, I read, and I read, I I watched uh, a a movie about a woman who was wrongfully imprisoned because she's trying, she went to prison to save her sister from, for a crime that her sister committed. So she sacrifices herself. She allows herself to be put in that prison So her sister could live a normal life, and even when she gets out, when she's on parole, everybody assumes and thinks that she did this awful act, and they treat her like it. The 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 taste of the of the payment that she had on her life did not stop; it was still there, and she's hated for it, and everybody hates her, and yet she's still trying to live a life, saving other people, even when everybody hates her. And as I'm watching this film, I'm like, oh my goodness. Jesus isn't just a moral precept. Jesus isn't just an example. Jesus is, and a, a not just a nice story, but if the sacrificial chesed of God, the loving kindness of him, that doesn't, just, that doesn't protect us necessarily from all the hurts of this world, but protects us cosmically from the ultimate pain of sin and death, that moves us into life anew with him. That's, that's, a, that's categorically different. To the degree that you get that and understand that, then Psalm 42, When you, you, you know you have that in your bones when you can go into your life and say this to yourself, heart, hey heart, you feel this way? But stop being driven by how you feel and start being driven about how Jesus feels about me. Hey heart, it's okay to be sad. You're sad right now. But I'm not gonna let that feeling be the driving force of my life. That feeling is not my Lord, you're my Lord. And so you can submit not just my life to you, but even my ups and my downs to you. And so it's okay to feel this way and yet not be the product of our feelings. I think Psalm 42 gives us permission to feel, but not permission to forget what to do with those feelings. And so today, if you're not a Christian, or maybe if you are, folks, don't give up. Don't stay, don't just sit on your hands. Examine, remember, remember speak to your heart about the redemption that was won for you in the past and the redemption and restoration waiting for us in the future. And if we can sit in that space, we can live this life out with each other in small, tangible, communal ways, but not just in here. God is building a new kingdom in this world that we can participate in for the human flourishing of the universe. And if we do this well, then when we don't feel God's presence, it's a powerful moment, you have a potential right now to taste and see him anew. It's amazing how in affliction, when hardship comes, that tends to be the very place where you actually get a new taste of his love, a new t- realization of his, of his heart for you. So don't waste that potential right now. Go to it. Right now, it's a powerful place where you could live. Last thing I'll say is this. I was uh, a couple of years ago there was a son of a, of a woman, an 84-year-old mother who had severe dementia. She was in a nursing home, and he was calling his mother. And you can just imagine the pain of, of loss and hurt that, you know, every time talking to his mother who can't really remember him. And he remembers this phrase, though, she said to him. She said this to him. She said, I think about you even when I'm not thinking. I love that. I think, I'm, I'm thinking about you even when I'm not thinking. She can't remember him, but she had, through her whole life, made him so important to her that even though she had some realization, I can't really remember you, she still somehow was able to remember and think about him. My prayer before we end is this, for everybody in this room, for myself included, when we have our own selective memory about God's love, when you and I have spiritual dementia about his life, his work, his actions in our hearts. I pray that we would be able to still think about him even when we can't really think about him. And you could do that with Psalm 42. That's, this is our guiding light. This is our, our map and, and um, way to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. Wherever we are in this room, whatever moment of lament that we've been through or gonna go through, I pray we would run to Psalm 42 as a means to help us articulate our own emotion, our own hurt, our own heartache, Father. And to let us know what to do with it. To to not just remember, not just examine, but to speak at our hearts. To seek you. To try to taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray that we would do this now and forever. Amen.
0: Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit linconsquare.redeemer.com.